This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the awards season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson, and I'm here in studio with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Richard. We're on the line with uh, senior writer Joanna Robinson. Hi, Richard. And joining us for the first time since maternity leave, which is not quite over yet, but where she's taking a little break from babies to talk little gold men, is our own deputy editor, Katie Rich. Katie, hi. Hi. I feel like this is illegal. (laughs) Are we allowed to be doing this? I'm reporting all of this to HR. (laughs) Uh, In theory, I'm taking a break from a baby, but he's in the room with me. So uh, everyone look out, listen out for a cameo. And if I disappear suddenly, you'll know why. Our special guest today. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. As I I told you guys before we started recording, he's got on a headphones onesie, so he's ready. (laughs) A little pink man for little gold men. (laughs) He was born under a podcast moon. Uh, so yeah, we have a couple big things to talk about on this episode. So we're you know two weeks out from the Oscars. Next week we'll be talking about the nominated shorts and all that, which actually kind of comes to bear on today's conversation. But I wanted to first start just very briefly with another awards show happened this past weekend, unrelated to film for the most part, which is the Grammys, which I think not unlike this year's Oscar ceremony, people were thinking, oh, it's going to be a mess because all these big musicians won't do it for political reasons or they just don't care or whatever. And then I don't know if, if any of you agree, but I thought the show turned out kind of okay. It was entertaining. And so I wrote something for the site that people can read about like, maybe we shouldn't be worried about the Oscars because chaos can be the uh, mother of invention and, and maybe something good will come out of this. Do any of you feel that way after the Grammys? Well, I I will admit right here on air that I did not watch the Grammys this year. But what I heard, <laughs> if that's a fair opinion to have, is that all the collaborative sort of tribute acts were pretty incredible, extra incredible this year. And so, you know, we always talk about, you know, what does the Oscars need more of? And as they're frantically trying to trim their ceremony, I know we shouldn't be talking about what they need more of. But I always love the montage, the like celebration of film history sort of aspect of the Oscars. And so I feel like that's sort of what the Grammys was doing. They were they were celebrating a broader thing of, of music because they couldn't get their very specific contemporary acts that they wanted in, in some ways. And uh, so that might be something for the Oscars to keep in mind. Although, Joanna, they did also pair Post Malone with the Red Hat Chili Peppers. So not all great ideas. Some great Ooh. ideas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and there Mixed was, at best. Yeah, and, and Queen of Motown, Jennifer Lopez doing a Motown medley <laughs> was a bit odd. But I know what you mean, Joanna. And I think that, like, especially without a host, the Oscars are going to need more sort of just like a binding material for the whole show. And, and maybe those are the way to do it. It would help to have a theme and musical performances. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, if to, if it's more like the Grammys in the sense that there's five great musical acts, that would be nice. That's always been the good thing about the Grammys. Like, no one cares. They give out 200 awards and 190 of them off camera. But it's all about people, <laughs> you know, being doing great performances, which I do think the Oscars have this opportunity this year to double down on. So I guess we'll just see. Yeah. I love your suggestion, Richard, that they uh, reenact scenes from the movies the way the Tonys used to do, which could be totally bizarre. Like, I can't imagine Black <laughs> Panther being reenacted on a stage. But, you know, you imagine Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga performing Shallow. That's sort of going to be like that. Like, something that gets at what we liked about these movies in the first place. Yeah, I just want, you know, Olivia Coleman stepping on some rabbits on stage, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think it could be interesting. But I, I Have Rachel Weisz and Joel Ullman do the dance from The Favorite. That's there. Perfect. There It'd you be go. cool if um, Mahershala Ali and Viggo Mortensen solved racism <laughs> on the stage. Well, they already t- yeah. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, like, if you think back to, like, 20 years ago, you know, I do those recaps uh, of the award show 20 years ago, which I will have up on the site next week for the 1998-99 Oscars. When they would do best score they would often do a whole dance number for that and like that kind of got put out of the way because it was kind of obsolete and looked a little cheesy but like hey look they've got it's not that they've got time to fill exactly but they've got a sort of uh pizzazz lack right now without a host so um i don't know i think that like the grammys showed us like that you're that uh maybe a little theatricality is is a good thing from these things. But speaking of the of the Oscar show specifically, the big news for us and the whole community this week was that the Academy, after months of threatening slash kind of almost like teasing it as if it was a good thing, that they were not going to air every, you know, uh, winner uh, at the show on the 24th, uh, they finally announced what categories those are, which is uh, live action short, best editing, best cinematography, and hair and makeup. Uh, and Twitter and broader went kind of ballistic um what, what do you all think about that mike, mike what was your takeaway from that announcement well i mean the shorts fine you know at some yeah. level but like cinematography and film editing like we've talked a lot on this podcast that editing is one of the surest signs that you have a chance as best picture because the movie's actually made in the editing booth. And then it's shot by the cinematographer. So it's just like, it's so incredibly central to the creation of the films that you're ostensibly celebrating. I think, you know, if you're going to cut something, I can see them just saying, you know, and and Chris Tapley uh, from Variety was saying, look, you know, it'll take a minute for people to get used to it, but take all the shorts categories and move them over to like a governor's award type of a thing. People will be annoyed at first, but like, it's fine. You're still going to have an Oscar. You made a short. Your your goal is probably not to make shorts for the rest of your life. Like, that's a really great thing. But you can't get any higher than winning the Oscar for cinematography. And it's just b- bizarre to kind of have that off screen. I mean, I, I, under- I actually maybe more than most understand the desire to do an entertaining TV show and to sort of let people know that, like, it's not about your speech to, like, 20 people that no one's ever heard of. It's about trying to keep, you know, the audience at home, like, excited and you still get the Oscar and you can still put it on your mantle. But... I don't know. Those just seem like not the right categories to sort of uh, demote. So the idea is that they're going to rotate which categories they're going to cut every year. So if cinematography and editing are cut this year, they won't be cut next year is the idea. Right. And I think the other idea was let's put some of the biggies 
in the commercials, like cinematography and editing so that, you know, it doesn't feel like almost, so it doesn't feel as stratified. It's like, it's not just sound editing and sound mixing that you could never tell the difference between those two categories. So we shoved them off. We put some of the big boys like in, in the commercial breaks as well to avoid like an, you know, an all out riot. That's both smart and at the same time has caught the notice of people in a way that that maybe some smaller quote unquote categories wouldn't. I'm like the more I learn about this whole thing, the more frustrated I am on behalf of these craftsmen and artists because one thing that I, I have like surprisingly flipped on as I've dug into all of this is that I used to champion people when they you know, talked over the orchestra playing. Cause I'm like, yeah, have your moment in the sun. Fuck the orchestra. Keep talking actor. Who's given 10 speeches already this, this, uh, award season or whatever. But now I'm like, okay, it's those long speeches that have really truly fucked these other people. You know what I mean? Like that moment in the sun. I mean, it's not, it's not the long speech giver's fault, but I was like, oh, it's, but it's part of the problem. You know what I mean? And it's like, my hope out of all of this is that, the members of the other branches, like the directors and the actors who have celebrity and sway will speak up in defense. Like I'm, I'm not ready to give this up. I'm sure it's like a done deal and it's over and I should give it up the fight. But I, I'm hoping that if enough names spoke out against this, like Guillermo del Toro wrote like a very viral tweet about it yesterday, then maybe they could reverse the Academy's opinion. I, I just think it's cowardly. It's, you know, this whole idea yeah. of like, well, then as long, if cinematographer is also screwed, then these people won't be able to complain as much. It's just like, just put it on the table. Like, what are you saying? Prioritize, you know, you run the damn Oscars like you like make a decision and then live with it. Um, they just have they just have kind of like been cowardly about everything and, and, and kind of flip flopping all over the place. And it's not a good look. You know, somebody they need a leader, really, frankly. Yeah. Well, I think I saw um, Ann Thompson suggest on Twitter that John Bailey, the president of the Academy, is a cinematographer and kind of thought he was leading by example by putting his category in the commercial break, which I, I definitely I, I get the logic behind that, like he's willing to sacrifice his own thing. But I think you're right, Mike, that he and the other people who are making these decisions just seem to be going like, is this what you want? Is this what you want? Like, does ABC right. want this so that the ratings will go up? And like, you know, the, the popular Oscar being the biggest example of it. Uh, and to us, I think the answer all along has been nothing is going to change it. Like, you're not, not going to boost the ratings by doing all of this stuff. It really is about whatever you nominate and the fact that live TV viewership is going down and you can't change that. Well, and I was joked on Twitter, sorry to reference my own tweet, but like, you know, baseball games are long, so let's do all the walks and the ground outs yeah, like during the, the, the commercial breaks. It's like, that's a baseball game. That's baseball. Yeah. At some level, it's like, we, you guys have been making this argument more than me. I don't know why I'm suddenly exercised about it, because I've been a little more open-minded. But but now that you see it, it's just like, guys, it's the Oscars. It's not going to be something yeah. other than just the Oscars. be the Oscars. Right. Yeah. And, and we've had so many awards shows already this season that just, that honor the actors. I mean, with much love and respect to these actors, and I want them to have their, like, Oscar moment, these winners, some more than others this year. Like, we've seen this show already. It comes after all these other shows. And what makes the Oscars different is the holistic celebration of the craft. It, it really it really saddens me. And I can't remember if I already talked about this on the podcast, but um, something that I didn't know. I think I did because, you know, you, Mike, I think have been in the room for the Oscars, right? But that the fact that 
the whole thing becomes a zoo during the commercial breaks that like people go up and go to the bathroom, go to the bar. And so those people who are accepting their awards during the commercial breaks are going to be doing it to an inattentive audience. And that's just like, that's devastating. And anyone who's ever had to give like a wedding toast or whatever knows how miserable it is to try to be talking while a room full of people is just like not paying attention to you. Um, Well, I I haven't been to the Oscars, but I have been to the Webbies. Oh, and uh, so similar. (laughs) Sorry. And the Golden Globes and a couple others. But um, at the Webbies, Webbies. they make everybody, their speech has to be five words. And then it becomes actually like an interesting sort of challenge and Mm -hmm. and everybody gets very clever with it and it's fun and it's fast. It is fun. Well, I just feel like, and you know, I feel like all the thanking of random people is a problem. They got to fix that. And, and, you know, they should like have a YouTube channel where you can thank 400 people if you want to. You can thank your entire extended family. Yeah. But like there should be a way for you to go up there, be emotional, have a moment, but like not talk yeah. for a long time about everyone you know. I think Rebecca Keegan, late of the F, now at THR, tweeted something similar to that about, we're just we're referencing a lot of tweets on this podcast, I guess, uh, about um, <laughs> how Glenn Close's Golden Globe speech was kind of an example of go up there, give an, an interesting anecdote that sort of frames the movie, frames the victory, and then you can thank everyone afterward yes. at the party. You know, that's yeah. a lot more interesting. And another thing that I saw online when, when this news dropped were a couple small conspiracy-ish theories. One being that because Alfonso Cuaron is almost assuredly going to win Best Director, we did they, the Academy figured we don't need to see him win Best Cinematography either. The other being that none of the cut categories is a Disney movie, which, you know, Disney owns ABC. <laughs> right. No, like, suspiciously so. I don't like to get too conspiracy theory about this kind of thing, but, like, when I wrote... Um, a piece about this for for VF last week, I said I didn't think there was any way they were going to cut costume design because that's like Black Panther's only chance of winning. And that wasn't even a a Disney conspiracy. That was just like, give the people the Black Panther when they want, right? They want to see that, not during a commercial break. But yeah, the... The ABC Disney Oscar nominations outside of the top eight. This is from at awards underscore watch. Eric Anderson, friend of the show. The only category being aired that Disney isn't nominated for is documentary short. And of the four not being aired, editing, cinematography, makeup, and live action short, Disney is not nominated in any of those categories. So it's kind of a little damning when you line it up like that, I got to say, you know? Yeah. Um, Fishy. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I guess, are we sort of consensus that, like, maybe the, the best solution to this, and, you know, this is, you know, again, we are going to be talking about the shorts next week, is to just kind of move the shorts. Is that the best solution? Or, I mean, is there a more ruthless way that you would cut a category if you had to? Well, again, to quote tweets, I think it was Mark Harris who pointed out that the fact that the shorts air during the awards is what has led to the fact that they bring all the shorts into theaters and they actually gross money in this program that they have where everyone can see the shorts and you can rent them on iTunes. So I think it does make sense in some way that they can stand apart the best, but that kind of proves the value of having all the smaller stuff on the ceremony, that it brings visibility to these crafts. It like lets this work be seen. Uh, So it kind of breaks my heart to think that even that would get cut out. Yeah, and like also, you know, like in a year when the, the the academy is concerned about the sort of viewability of the show, cutting moments of spontaneity and stuff like that when people could react in a certain way. Like who who was it who proposed last? Yeah. You know, like like it was, producer, it was the producer of the Oscars, right? right at yeah, the yeah. Emmys, that's at the Emmys, right? You know, yeah. so like like 
in tightening, you're sort of allowing for that not to be a thing because we're not going to get a crazy outburst from any of the four acting winners. You know, like like I don't know. I just feel like seeing a bit more. Remember the year when 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 Mad Max was winning all of the technical awards and like every craziest Australian in in, in the whole country like just was coming up on stage like category after category. And yes. It was just so funny. Yeah, yeah, it was like yeah. wild like Mad Max people. Um, the like, crafts people always have really interesting hair. Yeah, frequently. really interesting hair. Sometimes like a credit card dress. You know, remember <laughs> yeah. that? Like yes. And they're so excited to win. Like, they, it means a lot. I mean, obviously, it means a lot for Mahersh Lali to win an Oscar, but it's a different, like you said, Richard, like, they've been giving speeches all season. It's different for these crafts people to have their moment on the most watched, second most watched television event of the year. Well, and I'm excited for Richard. I'm going to make an announcement that Richard is going to be at the Oscar party this year. Yeah. And um, the craft people are the coolest people of all, and they'll let you hold their Oscar. Oh, which so you got to give <laughs> yeah. credit, give props to the crafts people. I'll be in my credit card dress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mike is wearing the studded Mad Max jacket that that costume designer yeah. wore. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to propose to Richard uh, during the live stream. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we, we broke yeah, into uh, the uh, Planet Hollywood, stole some memorabilia <laughs> that we're going to wear. Yeah, I, when I talked to Joe Letary, who's the head of Weta and has been nominated and won a bunch of Oscars, he pointed out that like if, if ABC is concerned about people not tuning in uh, because the show the the films that are nominated are ones that a lot of people don't see you know and like hence the best best like most popular film category idea the below the line categories are the ones are are the movies people have seen so mad max is the one people have seen or like i don't know for better or worse suicide squad you know like these are these are where the popular films wind up your star wars your etc and so you know it's it's counterintuitive it's it's really depressing and i think it's cowardly speaking of cowardly i think it's cowardly for other members of the academy to not speak up i think you know, speak up, protect your your friends in in the film industry. You know, yeah. There seems to be some hope or sentiment that, like, because they're the biggest group in the academy, if actors say, "I'm not gonna," you know, if Glenn Close says, "I'm not gonna get up on that stage unless," you know, that like maybe the. I mean, this has been months now of the academy saying something, then walking it back, saying something, then walking it back. So you know, we're 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 uh, you know. We're not going to do all the songs. Oh, wait, no, just kidding. We are going to do the songs. We're going to have a popular film category. No, we're not. So so I don't think that any of this is set in stone. And I think that's kind of what the chaos I was you know, referring to. Like, so far, nothing really, in theory, good has been born out of that chaos. But, like, I still have my fingers crossed that, um, that they can figure it out. Roger Deakins is going to host. There you go. The Oscars. <laughs> there you go. I mean, that, that's the thing. Is like Roger Deakins winning, you know, finally winning his award was a huge Oscar yeah. moment. And, that, you know, imagine that being in the commercial breaks. And then imagining, imagine gaming who you're going to put in the commercial breaks depending on what the narrative is going to be. So, like, last year, they never would have put Roger's year in the commercial breaks because they knew that was going to be a big moment. So the optics of that alone is is troublesome. Yeah. Is there also not a hope that an actor or maybe like Francis McDormand who will be presenting will say something on stage? Like I can imagine maybe if there's no like organized SAG protest that someone who is willing to step up will get out there and be like, this is bullshit. I could imagine almost remember when Jon Stewart hosted and the woman who had co-written the song from once like got cut off and then like later oh, yeah. he, he brought her back on. Like I could imagine some winner being like, actually the editing winner, come up on stage and, and give your speech or something like that. And yeah. it's live television, so what are they really gonna do? Yeah. Um I would love a little kind of like punk protesty kind of thing like that. I think that would be that would be fun. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. 
Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. A little bit less chaotic, I think, in all of this is this sort of list of likely winners that's taking shape and I think that was really clarified by the BAFTAs uh, which is the British Academy's award ceremony that was on this past weekend and I don't know the list of winners seemed pretty much to go as expected did anything stick out as a solidifying a sure thing or or were there any surprises that you guys saw from from that ceremony well I think best actress is surprising Mm -hmm. in that Olivia Coleman beat Glenn Close and Lady Gaga, right? Which we, which was something we kind of thought might happen really early on in the season, and then it seemed it had seemed like it was Glenn Close's year, and then I think we had been kind of thinking if it's not Glenn Close, it's going to be Gaga, but maybe if it's not Glenn Close, it's going to be Olivia, or maybe if it's not Olivia, it's going to be Glenn Close. Like that, that race does still seem kind of kind of mixed up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would only disagree because the Baftas nominated the fa- the favorite got far and away the most nominations of the Baftas. And, you know, one best British film over Bohemian Rhapsody, which people are afraid Bohemian Rhapsody is going to win. You know, so there was, and Rachel Weiss won, you know, so I think the the love for the favorite that was shown at the BAFTAs is just a very British thing. They're like, God, our monarchy, our, our, our actresses, you know, so I, I don't know that we'll see, I don't know that that changes the odds on Glenn Close winning that still feels like a lock to me. I wondered if Rachel Weisz was a similar situation where maybe we should take her more seriously. Because I think you guys have been talking the last few weeks about how Regina King is, uh, you know, she feels like the front runner, but she hasn't won a lot of the last few awards. I know Chris was floating his theory about Marina Tetevera uh, in Supporting Actress. Does Rachel Weisz feel like more of a threat or is that also just kind of the homegrown favorite effect there? Yeah, I think that Rachel Weisz is like deeply respected, you know, by the British film industry. I mean, and as, as she is here, but like, I think that, you know, you know, um, Emma Stone is not of that world. And, and um, I don't know. That that's what it felt like to me, but again, the favorite does have a lot of people kind of gunning for it in a way that I didn't expect. You know, these sort of like very formal bodies to do because it is sort of an alienating movie. So, like, if it can get past that sort of initial hurdle and and still be winning awards, like maybe there is something to be said for its momentum. With I just assumed that because Regina wasn't nominated, right. then someone had to win, and right. it's not clear, you know, who is even the favorite in that group. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I do think it's interesting that the BAFTAs went so hard for the favorite 
Because I think like Brits, not to generalize, but here I go, kind of want to puke at stuff like The Crown. And so to see this version that's much more irreverent and kind of punk and, and crazy and alienating to your point, like I, I think it's it's much more welcome. And not there. directed by a British guy. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Kind of interloper. So, it's an interesting dynamic. But I don't know that Americans, you know, I think it, it lands a little differently here. I think it lands, we've talked about it, I think it lands well in New York. I don't know how it lands in L.A. <laughs> Well, I mean, it seems like Rami Malek is in a very good position to win Best Actor now. Yeah, I don't really see that narrative changing, honestly. I think that it has momentum. I think that movie, beloved by a certain sect of the industry, that's that's an award it can get and it can feel sort of comfortable with because, you know, um, I think that the, the thinking is that, well, yeah, there was this director thing, but he helped him get fired. We've talked about it. But, like, you know, I think that Malek, I think that you suggested it, Joanne, a couple weeks ago or last week, that, like, he might be kind of viewed as this sort of, like, the, the hero of the, of the tale because he got the bad guy offset. And, you know, and I could see that being what happens. And, and I just don't think that Cooper's kind of weird late-stage sort of semi-campaign is going to do anything and I think that Vice for all of its you know nominations some of which I think are, are surprising like Best Director I don't think Vice has the, the juice to go that far and I feel like Malik is the only one who does for all the talk that so I've been you know listening to you guys and kind of keeping up on the news somewhat you know I've been out and for all the talk of Bohemian Rhapsody being the mega hit uh, of this group, I was just looking at the box office. It made two million more than A Star Is Born in the domestic box office. It's, it's a hugely massive global hit, but I, I keep seeing talk of this populist revolt at the Oscars this year and about how like Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book are the beneficiaries of that. And I know we've talked about A Star Is Born over and over again, but it just continues to confuse me how Bohemian Rhapsody gets the kind of blockbuster title while A Star Is Born kind of slinks off into the sunset. Is it because A Star Is Born? got that number on the strength of kind of fairly glowing reviews, whereas Bohemian Rhapsody had to overcome terrible reviews and critical hatred. That, that, that to me, is why it feels like yeah. this, this kind of punch back in the face of uh, the establishment. I think it's that. I think that, you know, increasingly foreign box office is sort of, you know, we, we used to really almost exclusively talk about when we talked about box office hits, you know, domestic gross and, and like that was sort of, oh, yes, and then it made something foreign. But like now I think that, that that's all rolled up so intricately with each other that like I think that when you when you zoom out, then you're like, well, Bohemian Rhapsody really made a lot more money than I mean. Star is Born made over $400 million worldwide. It did very well. I also think that Star is Born has the problem of people thinking you know oh it's good but like come on we've seen this three times before whatever yeah. like you know i think that there is a little bit of fatigue that maybe that like kind of hurts it whereas you know with with the, the bohemian rhapsody like here's a band that you know has not had its film treatment yet and that is beloved and that offers a, a sort of mild sense of subversion but like it is really pretty traditional and I don't know not that A Star is Born isn't traditional but um, I think also I don't, I don't know part of me thinks that the Lady Gaga factor could be alienating to some people yeah who were like oh you know just kind of dopey pop star you know and I don't know that I don't, I don't think that that was necessarily aided by her performance at the Grammys which was this deliberately oddball take on Shallow which I feel like was her being like don't worry you know little monsters like I'm still the weird pop star that you I'm not I'm not totally just Hollywood glam now um, but I don't know I think that could be off-putting to some of the more the stuffier voters perhaps 
But what about her speech when I think they won best uh, pop duo recording? They, they won a Grammy early in the night and she came out there to give this speech and she seems so like flustered and overwhelmed and like I couldn't believe that she could win a Grammy even though she has God knows how many Grammys already. There's there's some kind of active performance to that that felt to me like, oh, she's trying to audition as like the, the humble actress at the same time. Like she's trying to walk both sides of the line. I think it's that. I think she's also, and this is very cynical of me, I think she's trying to reframe expectation where now it's going to be a huge deal if she wins the Oscar for best song and so no one thinks about that she didn't win the best actress oscar you know um that is that is genius <laughs> whatever strategist came up with that idea because i think you're dead right that's a great idea no you're right though richard like there's something going on and people are not buying some of what lady gaga is selling i can't remember which of the precursor awards it was i think it was maybe the sag or something but she liked the webbies it was a webby (laughs) she gave her five word speech but she kind of like broke down and people are like give us a break like you're not that excited about this dumb precursor award you know it's just somehow she just can't quite nail the hollywood that hollywood's looking at her like with serious side eye it seems and and i think that unfortunately we tend to sort of look at the awards narratives of uh, actresses more than we do actors in these terms like but I remember you know 10 plus years ago or no I guess it was 10 almost on the nose when Kate Winslet was going through her you know stint of winning for Revolutionary Road or The Reader you know both and and by the time she got to the Oscar people were kind of sick of her because she the critical sort of take on it was that like you need to build a sort of arc yeah. for your awards narrative which I think Glenn Close has done beautifully mm-hmm. um, unfortunately we don't put or I mean a lot of people don't tend to put that same sort of narrative pressure on the male actors uh, but um, yeah I think I don't know, there's something sort of there's a there's a, something in the works that's not quite quite clicking for her the other thing that is just seems now totally etched in stone is supporting actor. If if Richard E. Grant can't beat Mahershala Ali in England, yeah. then he's not beating Mahershala no. Ali, uh, despite <laughs> yeah. his wonderful sort of quasi-Bill Murray traips through award season that I think has made at least a lot of people go watch With Nail and I or, or yeah. put well, it on their list. Yeah. Or Hudson Hawk. If you want to reframe an award season narrative, Richard E. Grant is like the definition of just happy to be nominated, happy to be here at every party, (laughs) having the ride of my life. Like, he's not walking away from this award season a loser. He's like, my stock is on the rise. You know, people have rediscovered me. People are all talking about how great Spice World is, you know, like whatever it is. So um, I I feel like he's going to get a lot of jobs out of this. And I love that. I love that for him. Yes. Yeah, that's true. It really makes you wish that more of them were on social media because you know that like some other people are feeling that way and like, or, you know, it's not necessarily like cool to be that excited about your Oscar nomination that you know you won't win, but he has been such a consistent thrill in this season and like, I would be happy for him to win an Oscar, but like he doesn't need to. It really does feel like the victory has already been had and he's so excited about it. It's like, it, it does feel like it's been an ugly season, but that's my one bright spot. It's funny on the on the flip side. Um, one of the sound designers I think that I talked to was was sort of theorizing why the numbers are down at the Oscars, uh, the viewing numbers. And one of the things he pointed out is he was like, I think because of social media, you know, fans have so much access to the star experience all the time. Their favorite celebrities are on social media, so they don't need to tune into the Oscars to see the stars out in the wild. We are just inundated all the time, so it loses some of that special, you know, not to mention the fact that it's the fourth or whatever fifth major awards uh, show of the season. Um, and I loved I loved Chris Rosen's suggestion. I think about it, I've been thinking about it every day since he said it, of like, the Oscars should go first. They should just go first. They shouldn't go last. 
Whether or not that would threaten the livelihood of this podcast, I don't know, but um, (laughs) (laughs) they should go first. Well, and also the other social media thing that you just can't, it probably sounds so obvious, but it's like you can watch the Grammys and spend three and a half hours of your life sort of watching like a million commercials and what this thing worked and that thing didn't. Or like you can just open your phone at the end of the night and read a tweet and in literally one second know all who won every award. Like it's just, you know, or you could keep track all night while doing something that you enjoy and just kind of be like, oh, look, this person won. You have to really want the experience. And for some portion of the audience that didn't necessarily want the experience or would have watched it but had 2,000 other options on Netflix and, you know, could have watched one of the nominated movies at that time. Like, it's just, you know, it's a much more competitive environment. Yeah. I mean, I missed the SAG Awards because I was at Sundance and I just went, went on to TNT's YouTube page and watched like four speeches and I was like, okay, I feel like I right. saw that show. Yeah, you which can is, go pick yeah, your speeches. Yeah, Let everyone like, tell you what parts are interesting. It's like watching Richard, I DVR'd them and watched them in just over an hour. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> I skipped like most of the TV awards, and which I, you know, I probably wouldn't have done hey. had I'm working. But I know. I well, listen. I've seen the Mrs. Maisel cast give a lot of speeches. It felt like I could, <laughs> could move past it. <laughs> Actually, we have a conversation with Brad Bird, which is kind of exciting that Joanna did. But before we get to that, because we're going to be talking mostly about the shorts next week, I don't think we're going to get into like major like who's going to win predictiony stuff uh, for this year. But like. Do any of you, or maybe we could go one by one and say like one, one thing you're certain of that will happen on Sunday the twenty fourth. Um, Katie, do you have something in mind? Um, I guess I would say I'm certain that Alfonso Cuarón is going to win multiple uh, Oscars. He's going to win the cinematography Oscar that's going to be handed out during the commercial break, which is part of what I think makes it okay that uh, it's going to be happening then because he'll be back for Best Director and Best Foreign Language Film. I don't think this is a bold choice whatsoever, but especially after you know listening to Chris last week talk about the Roma, the Roma hype, the fact that Roma went and won Best Film at BAFTAs, it does seem like that train is moving uh, you know bigger and bigger, and I think it's going to win a lot. And Cuarón is going to win, I guess, three Oscars. Joanna? This is the easiest prediction in the world, but I am so excited to watch Into the Spider-Verse win animated mm. film. I love those guys. I'm so excited for them to have an Oscar. So there you go. Mike? The, beyond those two, the only thing I'm really that confident in is shallow winning song. Yeah. Like, I really don't know who's going to win. I, I don't feel comfortable saying... Uh, Rami's probably the closest at this point, oddly, to a, a sure thing, but I just don't know who's going to win all the acting. Yeah, yeah. And uh, my certainty is, we'll talk about it more next week, but my certainty is it's something about a dead or child is going to win the best live action <laughs> short. Because, good lord. <laughs> Your tweets about the shorts have not made me excited for the yeah. fact that I have to watch all of them for next week. And see, I'm like, I'm going to come back from attorney leave and help you guys talk about the Oscar-nominated shorts, and none of this is what awaits me. Thanks, guys. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. 
don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> okay, well, until we can dive into that, uh, all that stuff next week, uh, Joanna, you talked to Brad Ward. What was your conversation kind of all, all about? Yeah, so you would expect, you know, if you send your your journalist to go talk to Brad Bird, I would talk about his Oscar-nominated film or maybe the art of animation. But instead, I made it a conversation about musicals because his next project is going to be a musical. So uh, if you've wanted to hear Brad Bird, famed animated director, talk about musicals, the history of musicals, we did a lot of that. But but to be fair, this is a musical-heavy Oscar season. You've got A Star is Born, you've got Bohemian Rhapsody, both technically, I guess, musicals. Um, and we also talked about the animated penguins and the original Mary Poppins. So that's a little topical for films of last year. But also he did take us on a little brief tour of his own personal feelings about Oscar snubs throughout the years. We talked about the 1938 Oscars and Snow White. We talked about the year the Sting was nominated, all this sort of stuff. So a little Oscar history, a little musical history with Incredibles 2 director Brad Bird. Hello? Hello. Hello. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. There is something that I know that I've heard you say a lot, which is this frustration that the Academy doesn't seem to recognize directing an animated film in the same way they recognize directing a live action film. That's kind of the world in general. And I'm a grown up, you know, I, I, it's, it's fine. I, I accept it. But it's as if people don't think the films are directed, you know. That's the part of it that dismays me a little bit, that, you know, you still have to figure out shots, and if a character isn't coming uh, over correctly, you have to adapt. And and, um, I think that there is um, a feeling that animated films are somehow mechanized and not that they are... um, assembled and created, you know, in many ways, very similar to live action films. You know, you're still speaking the language of cinema. You're still, um, you know, coming up with camera angles and, and uh, moments where you press the accelerator down and moments where you break and, and moments where you stop and, and let a character have a quiet moment. And all of that stuff has to be orchestrated just as it does in any other kind of film. But people don't think about it that way, you know? Um, You just sort of want to be included in the conversation. I mean, Snow White uh, wasn't even nominated for Best Picture in the year that it came out, and and they had something like seven or eight nominations that year, and and I would challenge anyone to, you know, uh, what film do people know from that that year? Nine out of ten are going to say Snow White before they say one of the other films, and not to say that fine films weren't made. You just feel like you want to be included in the conversation. You know, they got a little uh, sort of token award right. that was very sweet. You know, a, a, a little uh, trophy with seven little you know trophies, but it was kind of like a pat on the head rather than than entering the the best picture contest. And I can't think of a reason why it shouldn't have been in the best picture contest. It has a beginning, a middle and ending orchestra was brought in to do the score. Songs were written, dialogue came through, performances were delivered. Although they were vocal and, and animation performances, they were performances. Nonetheless, sets had to be designed. You know, it's a movie. Sometimes I think that the Oscars should have a special category for 10 years later or 20 years later, 
okay, what was really the best film of that year? Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to that, of course. And, you know, that's true of any award, really. I mean, awards are really nice, but, you know, I've disagreed with the Academy as much or more than I've agreed, you know, with their choices. But that's part of being in, you know, crunching popcorn and, and watching that race like any other race. But, you know, absolutely, you know. And I have my years where where, you know, I, I have very strong opinions of what should have won. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid thinking American Graffiti, and I loved The Sting, but I, thinking American Graffiti was the best movie that year, the most uh, uh, unlike any other movie, and, you know, had a weird soundtrack that was all, uh, and a very influential one, and the editing crossed between four different storylines, and, it was really creative, you know, and I, like I said, I loved The Sting, but the best, um, most creative movie that year was, was uh, American Graffiti. And anyone who, you know, watches the Oscars and has fun watching them, you know, gets sucked into those things. If you love movies, you have your opinions of what you think should win in, in, in a given category. But, you know, like I said, the most important thing is that uh, awards are useful for unscaring people who might want to back one of your movies. If you have a, a few awards, they, they might relax a little bit more. And that's really the most useful thing about them is that they uh, can unscare uh, somebody who's, who's uh, afraid to invest in, in, a, in a crazy idea, you know? Yeah, on that note, you know, I I think one of the exceptional things about this year is in addition to your film getting nominated, we've got a number of other superhero films that are in the mix here. It feels like, you know, seeing Black Panther and Best Picture or something like that maybe destigmatizes the genre that people in Hollywood still like to kick dirt on. I think that that's true. You know, I think that... um in the, in the same way that, that Lord of the Rings destigmatized fantasy films, which were considered, you know, beneath the Academy's attention. And, and uh, then Lord of the Rings comes out and they have to, you know, they have to say, okay, yeah, all right, <laughs> right. that's a great movie, you know, right. or three great movies. But, you know, I'm one of the guys that thought that Dark Knight should have been nominated uh, years ago. I thought it was a really, you know, outstanding um, movie. And uh, I think that any kind of story should be fair game for a, for a movie, large or small. You know, I, I think that that's what makes movies fun is, is when they um, jump around and do more than one thing. You mentioned unscaring potential backers. One of the things that I'm really excited, so excited to talk to you about on the subject of being scared is your next project that you have in the works. I know you can't talk about it a lot, but I personally am a huge musicals fan. Yeah, I am too. I'm a huge musical fan. And But that said, there aren't that many great musicals. You know, it's really, really, really difficult to make a good one. Um, there's so many ways to screw it up. And I think that's partially the appeal of it is, they're complex and and it's weird it's not a real it's an unreal thing to break into song you know um and uh people have had varying success with it but when it is done right there's something really memorable about it there's something that cuts through to you and i think it's just the power of of song and and movement um is uh cinematically you know it's like movie catnip you know there's there's something about it when it's done 
well um, that is unique to um, movies. You know, if you do a, a musical on the stage, it's also a wonderful thing, but you're limited in the kind of things you can present. And uh, movies have this wonderful transportive uh, ability where you can go anywhere and, and really cut to the heart of the matter. And, and animation shares many um, qualities that, that the best musicals have, you know, with um, stylizing a moment and, and trying to capture the essence of something, but not necessarily the reality, the, uh, the feeling of, of a moment. And, you know, animation deals with motion in a way that is very, um, at its highest level, is, is very um, specific and sophisticated. And, and musicals do that uh, as well, not only with dancing, but just moving people through the frame in a way that feels complete. So I have all the respect in the world for people that have managed to pull off, you know, musicals and do it well. Um, but, you know, I go into it knowing with, with deep uh, respect for how easy it is to screw it up. And um, I love collaborating with Michael Giacchino, who's done the music for um, every film except uh, Iron Giant. Uh, that I've done, and, and um, we're very excited to to get to work on. Yeah. This. So to to give uh, context to anyone listening who doesn't know, um, all we know of the project so far is that it's an original story. You're planning about 20 minutes of animation, and that Michael Giacchino is doing the music. Is that still accurate? That's about it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just think that if you talk about this stuff too much, you start to you know, deflate the tires on, on the car before it's even on the road. So, um, but, uh, I'm very excited about it and it's a project I've wanted to make for quite a while. Yeah, absolutely fair. I, w- I want to let you know that, um, uh, and maybe this is too nerdy for me to admit on air, but, um, I keep a list of directors that I want to see direct a musical and genuinely I put your name on the list when I saw Ghost Protocol because there's that sequence at the beginning the kick in the head Tom Cruise <laughs> prison break and I was like yes. this is essentially a musical yeah, yeah. It's, it's essentially a musical <laughs> sequence I want to see Brad Bird do a musical I felt similarly about Violet's fight I will say in Incredibles 2 which is also just so beautifully choreographed oh thank you very much well that's one of the, the things that I really enjoy joy about movies is is being able to move around in space. I love uh, films that do that well, and, and uh, it's fun to play in that particular sandbox, you know? Okay, before I move on from one of my favorite subject matters of all time, without having you deflate the tires on your upcoming uh, project, can you say some of the mu- movie musicals that you feel really did get it right, that really nailed it in your estimation? Sure. You know, I... The, the ones that I think are just absolutely great, there's probably only like uh, 10 or 12 in my estimation. I, you know, I think uh, Wizard of Oz, I think West Side Story, I think uh, Cabaret, I think Fiddler on the Roof, Sound of Music, Music Man, Guys and Dolls, um, you know, uh, Singing in the Rain, American in Paris. And, you know, there, there are some unusual ones, too, like uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and, and uh, I liked La La Land, you know, and it was a very uh, um, unique kind of film, very old-fashioned in some ways and, and, and not old-fashioned at all in others. And, and uh, you know, it was fun. It was just the, the boldness to set a, uh, an opening dance sequence on the L.A. freeway. It was just... Right. Uh, 
really uh, exciting, you know. Um, you know, everyone has their own movies that they like, as you know, and and those are a few of mine. But but I I think one thing that's true of all of them is they all are loaded with songs that are um, really uh, catchy and and dances that are incredibly cinematic. I mean, the opening to West Side Story is one of the greatest things that have ever been put on film. You know, with that. Um, first of all, with the overture, with that great graphic, and then and then going into the aerial shots of New York City until we're we're with the jets and the um, sharks, you know. And then there are musicals where maybe the whole film isn't great, but they have great moments in them. Um, Fred Astaire made a lot of those where the individual dance numbers were extraordinary um but maybe the films aren't as good as like gene kelly's films you know right um yeah and and you know there's this wonderful uh i forget i think it's called summer stock um but there's a scene in it where um where gene kelly encounters this newspaper on a stage and all it is is him dancing on top of this newspaper but it it absolutely is a stylized version of the creative process where you see him just kind of come upon a, an object. He comes upon a squeak in the floor and then he comes upon a, 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 a sheet of newspaper on the floor and he just starts inventing with those things. And uh, it's just transporting because you can see him coming up with the ideas and it's, it's like any creative exploration, you know, but it's put into a dance. I don't know. I just, there are a lot of things like that. You know, I like Hey There from uh, Pajama Game where the guy is dictating into a tape recorder and then ends up dictating his attraction to this woman on uh, the tape recorder and then uh, answers back to it and playback and, and is his own, you know, cynical uh, questioner. You know, and that's a really clever way to use sound, you know, to have somebody listening to their own voice and telling them what an idiot they are, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so there are a lot of films that maybe aren't um, great all the way through, but have these uh, transcendent moments. And, I, you know, I think you, you have to consider all those moments, too, and, and, you know, say, what is it about these that, that worked so well? And, and you know, how can, how can you you know, concoct something equally fantastic. Yeah, spe- you know, you, you have this experience in live action and animation, and uh, you're wanting to do both in this upcoming project. Then you just have to indulge me. One last question. What do you think of the blend of, you know, like animation and live action dancing in something like Anchors Away or something like that, where you've got the two things together the frame oh i think it's really fun um but i i I think that there are some rules to it it works better if the characters are animated in a way that obeys the same critics that the the, the same um uh, Mm. physics that the dancer itself is doing uh when the animated character is you know not obeying uh those physics uh and the uh live action person is it creates a separation that is not as fun to watch as, as when they both feel like they're in the same universe. And a lot of people don't, when they animate, they don't pay attention to things like um, weight and stuff. And I don't mean that you have to be literal with it and, and be exactly like it is in life. But I do mean that um, you want to 
pay attention to it because it's, there are all these things that separate. When you blend animation with live action, there are all these things that separate the two. And it feels better when um, they really feel together. And that means that the live action person has to really be good at pretending that the animation thing right. is there. And, uh, for example, Dick Van Dyke dancing with the penguins and Mary Poppins is just a transcendent moment because he was exceptionally good at looking in the spots where they would be, um, bending the cane when they uh, jumped on top of the cane and bending it in a way that it looked like their weight was bending it down and sliding them off. And, and the animator, uh, Frank Thomas, who did the dance, did all kinds of clever things to squeeze the penguins on the frame when there really wasn't quite enough room for them. So he had one penguin ducking under uh, uh, Dick Van Dyke's legs. And the, 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 uh, you know, the reality of that, even though the situation is completely unreal and, and kind of absurd, the reality of the, the penguins having to duck his legs gave this, strange scene, a, a real credence. And that's one of the reasons it's so delightful is you, even though it looks unreal, it also feels believable in its own way. And, uh, you know, I think that's uh, really exciting. That's one of my favorite making of a movie documentary moments is is watching that animator talk about watching Dick Van Dyke do the choreography and then going, where are my penguins going to go? And how he had to like squeeze exactly. them into frames. But it's an interesting thing. And this is, this gets, this is in danger of getting too super geeky. But sure. um, the, the really interesting thing is that most animators just workload-wise, would animate the penguin dancing once and then just multiply that four times with the Xerox machine or digitally if you were doing it today. But uh, Frank Thomas was a genius, and he realized that if, if you have four dancers on stage doing exactly the same dance with perfect timing, each one of them is going to handle it slightly differently. One is going to raise his legs just a little bit more than the other. One is going to yeah. put a little bit more flair on the hands. And so when he animates the penguins, they're all individual. They're all slightly different in the way that they do the, the same choreography. And that's, again, a, a, a subtext that the viewer takes as, wow, that's, a real, that's real, even though they're clearly drawn. It, yeah. It's behavior that, that breaks down the barrier between Dick Van Dyke and the animation. So um, there are all these little things that people don't really consciously notice, but make the moment magical. And, and uh, you know, having two geniuses uh, together, Dick Van Dyke and Frank Thomas, was, was great. At, uh, dancing to uh, genius choreography and genius music by the Sherman Brothers. Perfect. Um, well, okay. So let me do my due diligence and okay. bring this back to Incredibles 2 and the Oscar race. But if I ever launch a musicals podcast, I'm going to ask you back. But um, okay. This I is guess, all well, theoretical, you know. <laughs> I've just been alone too long, perhaps, you know. <laughs> no, I, I, I can't wait. Um, but the... Um, 
the last question I, I wanted to ask you, sort of building off what you just said, is is I feel like this is one of the most creatively exciting years for animated films uh, across different you know genres. In this category alone, you know, you've got claymation, you've got traditional hand-drawn Japanese animation. Yeah, these are stop, uh, you've got, stop motion, hand-drawn, yeah. and then a mixture of um, uh, sort of techniques in spider, uh, Spider-Verse. And, um, so yeah, it's exciting. And, and, uh, you know, I think that, that if these films succeed and and get attention, then it will create an even wider open field, uh, for other films to come, you know, people will feel like they don't have to just do one style of animation that many different styles can work and, and be rewarding. And the kind of people that are getting into animation now, it's, it's getting, it's spreading, uh, uh, you know, animation when, when I was uh, a kid was really kind of dwindling, you know, and it was kind of all going to television, which had to deal with really quick schedules and tight budgets. And, and uh, so the, the full kind of animation that Disney was famous for was really kind of disappearing. And, and now there's all kinds of animation, um, you know, and all sorts of animated features. You know, the Annie Awards, you know, when I was a kid, if you made an animated film, you got nominated because there were only, you know, two or three movies made, you know, in, in a year. And now there, there are 20 or 30 movies being made, you know, more more. And um, it's, it's exciting. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for indulging all my musical questions. I appreciate that even more. Oh, sure. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I know. I, was, I probably went off no, the rails no, a little my, bit. I'm sorry about that. It's my fault. <laughs> I could talk about it all day. It's literally my fault. So uh, thank you. Cool. And uh, get well soon and have a great day. Thank you very much, Joanna. Great to talk with you. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Little Gold Men. As ever, you can find all of our writing about the Oscars and beyond on VF.com. We're sort of tweeting at the little at Little Gold Men Twitter account, but we are definitely, as referenced many times in this episode, individually tweeting uh, on Twitter. I'm at Rylaws, Katie. I'm at Katie Rich. Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for best humble brag goes to Mike Hogan. I have been to the Webbies. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.